Blog Talk Radio. Slow down, touch your life. Don't you know there's friends to be found? Lift your eyes and see the world. Lift your eyes. Welcome to the Sunbury Press book show sponsored by Sunbury Press, publishers of books under nine different imprints in a variety of categories, sold worldwide wherever books are sold. I'm your host, Lawrence Knorr, and today we're going to be talking about the book Mere Catholicism by Daniel Agatino. C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity is the obvious inspiration for this book. In that book, Lewis uses the example of a person standing in a hall that is lined on both sides by rooms. Each room represents a different Christian tradition. He wanted to get readers into the hallway and let them choose for themselves whether to enter Christianity by the door of Anglicanism, Catholicism, and so forth. Mere Christianity brilliantly focuses on what essentially all Christians agree upon, namely the creed, the canon of the New Testament, etc., However, many of the great controversies between Protestants and Catholics are purposely not discussed. They were ecumenical reasons for avoiding topics like papal primacy, purgatory, Marian devotions, and so forth. But by avoiding these sorts of topics, mere Christianity can be read as mere Protestantism. Dan wrote Mere Catholicism to address some of these missing topics. Even though he is both intellectually and emotionally convinced of the truth of Catholic Christianity, he's indebted to C.S. Lewis, an Anglican, for help, helping him better understand how Christianity offers the most compelling reason etch. His work and the work of Lewis is an exploration of faith-seeking understanding, to quote St. Anselm of Canterbury. Daniel Agatino, welcome. Great to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, mere Catholicism, I guess we should start first with you, a little bit about you and your background, because I know you're an attorney, yet you've written this wonderful book about the Catholic religion. So, could you give us a little more on your biography? Sure. Prior to uh, being an attorney, I was a professor, and I taught at a Catholic college for uh, about a decade and a half. And when I was there, they let you take classes if you wanted to. So I decided to get a graduate degree in Catholic theology. Why not? And so that's how I, I informed some of what uh, is in my book. It's very interesting. You know, that show up at the university and, and explore, you know, what's available there. So that, that was more a curiosity, not so much a uh, uh, desire to go into the priesthood or anything like that. Right. Although I have been Catholic since I was in, uh, well, I was I was born into uh, a non-practicing Catholic family, but I was I was very curious about it since it was my earliest memories, and uh, had big questions that just weren't answered in some of the secular works that I was reading, and yeah, you know, I thought about uh, priesthood or about service in ministry. But I just didn't feel called to that. Uh, I love being a dad and having a family, so I don't think that uh, I'm gifted with celibacy. Actually, there's three vows of obedience, and I'm not good with that. Uh, celibacy, <laughs> I'm not good with that. 
and poverty with with I'm not good with that. So I fell it's three strikes me around, I guess. I I hear you on all counts. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, my background is is uh more agnostic but uh also raised in a more German Protestant culture all around me. So not a lot of Catholicism in, in my experience, you know, just here and there. And I've, I've always been fascinated by the Catholic Church, especially in my travels, uh, you know, first thinking about New York and St. Patrick's, but then also thinking about Europe. And uh, I was in, lived in Spain for a while and saw some of the wonderful cathedrals there, but then visited Rome, visited the Vatican, and uh, towards St. Peter's, the Sistine Chapel and the, the crypt, and actually stood by the grave of uh, the late Pope John Paul II. And I can tell you, as somebody who's not really a faith, there was an energy there at John Paul's grave, and it was, you could feel it. And uh, I don't know if it was the number of people passing by or uh, if it was something else that I was picking up on, but uh, it's just well, a, a I, layman walking I've by. It, it it just it, I had a wonderful Jewish professor. He was a, a, a he self-identified as an atheist Jewish man, and he would say uh, he was my ancient history professor. And he said when he would go to the cathedrals of Europe, he would walk in to say, "Wow, God lives here." And he didn't have a conversion experience. He, he still maintained his, his uh, atheism, but there's something palpable. There's something beautiful about the architecture, the stained glass, the the, the tactile experience of the, the candles being lit, the incense being burned, the light coming through the rose window of uh, Notre Dame, thank God it survived. There, there's something to it, uh, regardless of the supernatural element. It's, it's beautiful culturally. It's beautiful historically. Yeah, I know one of the things that struck me at St. Peter's was uh, just about everybody who passes through touches the hand, and the hand, the fingers are so worn from so many pilgrims or visitors coming by and touching the hand, it's, it's, I guess it's the statue of St. Peter. And it is the statue of St. Peter, yes. Yeah. So I was paying the attention. The funny thing is that <laughs> it, it used to be, I believe, and, and I'm sure someone will email me if I'm wrong, but I believe it used to be the statue of Jupiter, and they just put a halo on it, called him St. Peter, and there you go. Uh, which brings me to my other point, and my, my other real fascination, especially when in Rome and visiting the cathedrals there was that connection to Roman culture and I'm more of a historian, student of history and very interested in Roman history and have been to many of the more secular Roman buildings and aware of the Roman architecture and a lot of the Roman culture. And when you go through St. Peter's, you really get a sense of ancient Rome, almost like you do in the Pantheon. There's elements of that. And so you can, you can just see the, thousands of years of uh, the history right in front of you and can get a sense of some of that ancient Roman culture while it now has a Christian uh, environment to it. A lot of the elements present uh, can harken back to those days. Sure. So, Pontiff Max, a, you know, the, the use of Latin, the terms or titles for the Pope, yeah. we borrowed them from uh, Caesar. We borrowed them from Roman culture. Uh, the Catholic Church has different rites, but the most populous is the Latin rite, and there's there's much that we can connect back to ancient Rome, because Paul was a, a Roman citizen. Uh, Jesus lived in in Galilee under Roman rule. Pontius Pilate was the governor. 
So there's a lot to connect us to, to ancient Rome. Um, and what the church has done well for centuries is try and take what's good from the surrounding culture and integrate it, uh, sometimes transform it, sometimes just adopt it. Yeah, so I, I guess the further you get from Rome, maybe the less Roman it is, but the more local it is, and the but the underlying faith and teachings are similar. It, right, be a, and a so good way of it, describing it. Yeah. yeah, I think so. There's unity and diversity there, and there's, you know, it's funny if you go to the Melkite rites, they use Aramaic and Arabic. Uh, if you go to if you go to mass, you will hear the name Allah mentioned because that's that name the word Allah means God in Arabic and they're Arabic Christians and so they're sitting in a Christian church hearing the name Allah um, because that's what what's used in that rite it's not the Latin rite it's part of the Catholic Church it's a little confusing but it's just uh, uh, to quote one scholar as different as the fingers and as uh, as one as the hand so it's uh, unity in uh, diversity kind of thing so uh kind of setting up your book, maybe we should talk a little bit about C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. I was handed that book some years ago by a, from a friend at work, and uh, the individual was trying to convert me and thought that huh. this, is, this is one book that would, by reading it, it would, it would provide some proof and provide some explanation, that, more like a foundation than, you know, that was some years ago. But I, I know that it is a foundational book, a very popular book. Uh, I certainly had sold a lot of copies over the years, and C.S. Lewis was very well known for that, among other things. But tell us a little bit first about Mere Christianity, and then we'll dive into yours. It's a book that I enjoyed and millions of others have as well because it's very scholarly and also very readable, and that's something that's hard to do, to put the two together. So he did an excellent job of trying to produce a synthesis of some common Christian thought. And he didn't want it to be just for a particular audience of this denomination or that denomination. He wrote, if you're Catholic or you're Anglican or you're Baptist or you're Calvinist or what have you, this is for you. And he did a great job, and I I enjoyed it. Um, And I think that he was really a gifted writer. Because he once he once did a great analogy. He said, "You ever see kittens, newborn kittens sleeping on their mother? They they are in constant motion, but they're also at rest at the same time." And he was really good at being both scholarly and uh, a popular writer at the same time. He was really good at being very committed to his faith, but being very open to different interpretations at the same time. So he used his, he uses different analogies that the kittens at rest and at movement simultaneously. He talked about the two blades of a scissor working together simultaneously, and he just he was a brilliant intellect, and I appreciated his book, so I kind of patterned mine on it. Now he was also maybe even more famous for his fantasy writings, if I'm not mistaken. That's quite um, right. The Chronicles of Narnia is a great series. And, by the way, a, a cryptic Christianity. It's not a coincidence that Aslan, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't read the books, uh, that Aslan, the lion, um, is fierce and wild and good and noble. He saw God that way, that God was fierce in the sense of being awesome. Like if you saw him, you would fall flat on your face in, in terror. 
but he was also good and noble. And Aslan is killed in the story on an altar, and then he comes back never to be killed again. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's um, it's an archetype. It's it's using some Christian themes to uh, create a wonderful fantasy entire world, a mythos. Yeah, so you can you can see how Lewis was was working to uh, in different different platforms as we would call them now. Spread the ideas, spread his faith. Um, but let's talk about mere Catholicism. Why, why this book for you? Why now? Well, there's been so many stories about the church in recent years, and most of them not too um, flattering. Of course, we have the clergy sex abuse scandals and uh, their challenges to uh, papal authority and questions uh, within the church and from outside the church. And I thought, well, if we can uh, recognize that that's real and important, but put it all to the side for a moment to say, what is it that the church teaches as opposed to let's focus on the bad actions of uh, too many members of the church. And I decided let's, uh, let's see if, if there's a book there. And as you know, it, it took uh, quite some time to put it together for me. Uh, it went uh, a little long. So after editing and redacting, I said, here's what I want to say, that uh, I agree 100%. As a matter of fact, in my law practice, I, I have prosecuted claims for uh, members of clergy sex abuse, and I, I think that we need to purge the church of that filth. But once that's done, what is it that is supposed to be there? What, why is the church there? And it's following Jesus saying, be good to one another, uh, be holy, be kind, love one another. Uh, in Timothy, there's this great line, radix malorum est cupiditus in Latin, which is if you love money, you, you might not uh, uh, be as happy at the end of your life as if you love people. Very wise. So someone who's had uh, more of a Protestant experience in their lives, what what would I find different in your book? What would be more uh, that would differentiate Catholicism from, say, C.S. Lewis, most of his work, or what I've experienced? Sure. I think that, at least in popular Protestantism today, there's a strong social aspect of the gospel. So there's soup kitchens, and there's let's get together uh, for uh, lunches and, and potluck dinners. Let's uh, feed the hungry and close naked. That's all very important. It's part of Jesus' message. But on the Catholic side, there's still a deep supernatural element. We don't see the world as just haphazard. Uh, I don't want uh, to give the idea that God's playing chess with us, moving around uh, pieces, you have no free will. But certainly there's, there's a supernatural view of the world, that this, this isn't just accidental, that uh, you and I meeting is, is providential. It gets a little dicey. You don't want to get too far into it to say, every bit of your life is, is um, governed by God's will. I think of it like a highway. God puts you on the highway. You're born in a culture. You're born in a time. Um, you're, we're not ancient Egyptian, right? We, we live in uh, the United States in 2019, and that, that's our life. So I think of it, we're put on this highway. We get to choose the lane. We get to choose whether we're going to take the exit or that. But we're, we're not an airplane. We're not a fish. We're, we're a car on this highway. God put us in a particular time. And to the extent that we allow him, he'll guide us and we'll get in this lane or why don't you take this exit? There might be something interesting to see here. So from the Catholic perspective, 
I think that it's uh, a little bit more supernatural. Uh, the mass is something that we believe is a, a miraculous event. If you go to church, it's almost like calisthenics. You're standing, you're kneeling. It's tactile. There's, there's the smell of incense, the burning of candles, the light through the stained glass windows, the ringing of bells, the singing of hymns, pipe organs, and uh, vestments. We don't have uh, a pastor come out with uh, a suit and tie on. We have a priest come out with these ancient robes that, well, they're not ancient, but they're reminiscent of the ancient robes of the Hebrew priests from 5,000 years ago. Yeah, you, you definitely have um, the the services that I've been to, there is very much a more traditional ritualistic kind of feel to it. I, you know, my experience, uh, unfortunately, my parents bounced around between churches and things and were exploring when I was a kid. So I got everything from evangelicals to Jehovah's Witnesses to uh, German UCC Lutheran um, over the years, you know, touching on Catholics as well. And um, I should be careful how I say that, <laughs> visiting Catholic services. And, uh, you know, seeing a lot of differences in the services, um, maybe not so much at the core, very very similar beliefs, but uh, emphasizing different rituals and different situations. So I hear you on that. And uh, I guess... Uh, just to put this in perspective, how many Catholics are there in the United States right now, would you say? Well, yeah. it, it, it really differs um, if you're going to talk about self-identified Catholics versus um, those who are practicing. So I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but I know that people who are born into Catholicism, baptized, and they just come to church, maybe Christmas and Easter, uh, yes, mm-hmm. they're, they are, they're part of the club, but they're not really active members of the club uh for those that were saying uh you know they're they're committed they're participating uh again i don't have exact numbers it it was for many years the largest of the christian denominations uh, across the globe and certainly in the united states uh but there's there's some challenges there now and one of them is exactly what you were talking about which is it's it's a very traditional church i I go to protestant services because i have protestant friends and um, there's something to be said for just going and sitting in stadium seating and listening to a band with drums and electric guitars. And in the background, there's uh, a large screen, which is going to uh, show the, the Bible verses or the music. And there, there's a liveliness to it, an energy to it. And that might be very different than my local parish priest who we go in, you kneel, the, the uh, mass is formulaic, you know what's going to happen with the beginning, the middle, and the end. And so the, the numbers, especially with young people, are getting somewhat challenging because there has to be a draw. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, too, to say, well, are we going there to be entertained? Uh, we, we certainly want it to be interesting, but there's something different going on here. This is different than going to a concert, going to a coffee shop, going to uh, a, a different experience throughout the week. This is right. unique. But unfortunately, it can become uniquely boring for some, and so we have some challenges ahead of us. Yeah, and but worldwide, I've, I've seen numbers like a billion plus Catholics worldwide. So if there's that's correct seven billion correct. seven billion people, that's that's a significant number or percentage of people worldwide. 
maybe maybe attendance isn't as strong in in Europe and in the United States as it used to be, but it seems like other areas of the world are Catholicism seems to be thriving. And, yeah, Africa uh, is really strong, and there there is some lessening in Europe, though there may be a new demographic that's changing that. Um, and what we'll find is that this is cyclical. If we're looking at it in 2019 numbers, and you go back to 1819, you go back to 1419, I mean, the church has been around for 2,000 years, uh, there's been ups and downs, and revolutions. I mean, sometimes Catholicism was illegal uh, under Henry VIII or up to the French Revolution or what have you. And then there's, there's always been a resurgence. There's always been the church is very resilient. And regardless of if it's the uh, persecution of governments or if it's uh, the sinful actions of members within the church, uh, the church gets beyond it and continues to preach the gospel and, and, and try and continue Jesus's work, which is what we talked about before, uh, you know, go and baptize all people in uh, a vegetarian formula, uh, eat the hungry, be good to one another. Yeah. Spirituality and social gospel mixed together. Well, it's good that it's good that we're beyond uh, the history from, let's say, four or 500 years ago, where there was a lot of strife between Protestants and Catholics on a much, much larger scale. And some of my ancestors were affected greatly by that. Uh, Huguenots and Mennonites and other other, other Protestant faiths uh, trying to survive in a Catholic world. And you're, so history does, does have its twists and turns. I guess my question well, not is... Only, uh, not only are we beyond that, I'll, I'll tell you this quickly, because I know we're towards the end here, but um, because there are persecutions outside of the church, Christianity is being more persecuted today than at any time in recent centuries. Uh, there are people being executed just for saying they're Christian in parts of the Middle East. And in China, um, there are internment camps. Uh, they're, they're mostly Muslim, actually, where the Chinese government will go live with Muslim families. They will send an officer of the government to go live with Muslim families and say, you're too Muslim. You better learn how to be Chinese. And they'll take you to a camp and re-educate you. And sometimes you get to leave the camp. I'll leave yeah. it at that. Well, that's yeah. the same thing going on for Christianity in other parts of the world. Um, China's certainly no friends of Christianity. Saudi Arabia is not, other parts of the world. And so when you say the Protestants and Catholics are not fighting, we're, we're brothers and sisters that need to learn to get along. And there's much talk of uh, ecumenism, of finding commonality. It goes back to, you know, it, it, we're ending where we started. C.S. Lewis said, get into that hallway. We all are in the same building, all on the same yeah. boat, if you want to use that metaphor. And yes, we have different cabins, but uh, Jesus said, in my father's house, there are many mansions. There's many rooms. It's like in a hotel. And all right, maybe your hotel is a little different. You like the, the mini bar stocked, and I like to have snacks, and you like a view of the water, and I like to have a, a, a whirlpool hot tub or something. But whatever it is, we're finding we have to have commonality because we have a common enemy. What is the common enemy? those who want to kill us just because we're Christian. And another common enemy may be too strong a word, but another challenge is the, the secular worldview that, you know, you're, you're just an accident of nature, and therefore you don't really have much merit to yourself. That you're not unique. There's 7 billion of, of us, as you pointed out. So it's somewhat disposable. Uh, that Darwinian survival of fitness, I'm not 
arguing against evolution. I'm, I'm Catholic and we subscribe to that. But I am saying that if you take that to its uh, social extreme, uh, only the, survive, the strongest survive, that's not the, the Christian gospel. We take care of the orphans and the widows and uh, the sick. And you look at ancient history, yeah. before Christ came, there weren't many uh, hospitals, orphanages, care for the widows. It was in the Hebrew tradition, and there's, there's some others that were kind, but Christianity really institutionalized taking care of those less fortunate. There was, there was something about Jesus's message that is don't think that these people are cursed, that they deserve it. Go help them. Yeah, no, that, that is one of the wonderful aspects of Christianity in general. I know as you were talking about the martyrs, uh, I have on my wall downstairs in the hall uh, a page out of the Book of Martyrs, which shows a Christian who had been executed in a square, in a public square in Turkey. And it's a very gruesome picture. It's kind of off to the side, but it's a reminder of uh, what some people sacrifice for their faith and for their beliefs. And, uh, you know, thinking about how many people over the years, whatever their faith is, whatever their uh, belief that they, they've sacrificed so much. And uh, now that's a very stark reminder of that uh, and the differences in cultures around the world. So I want to bring us into the 21st century, though. We only have a few more minutes, and I had two questions for you. So I'm going to ask this one, and maybe we have time for the last one. So pulling, pulling it into the 21st century, why be a Catholic today? And what are the main reasons? Give me, well, give our audience a, a sense of that. Sure. The, the, the same reason today as when Jesus walked the earth. So the, the Catholics, the Christians, the, the, uh, the saints have thought about this for 2,000 years and came up with four reasons. That you're looking for the marks of the church, they're called. And it's one holy Catholic and apostolic. And real quick, one means that if I go to Mass here in New Jersey – or I go in North Africa, it's the same church. You talked about your experience, went to the Jehovah's Witnesses, went to the Germans, went to UCC, went here and there. Those are different experiences, um, and they're, they're uh, sort of isolated, compartmentalized. The Catholic church is uniform, and so it's one. Holy, you say, well, how can it be holy? There's, there's all these uh, bad things that have been going on, but it's a message of holiness, and um, it's what we talked about, go feed the hungry, clothe the naked, care for those who are less fortunate. And there's a holiness to it and a holy reverence of what we talked about before. When my professor, my atheist Jewish professor, walked into the cathedral and said, God lives here. Or you're at the, the tomb of John Paul and said, there's an energy here. So one holy Catholic means that it's universal. Uh, the teachings are the same back from the times of the apostles to today. We don't have to jump into the 21st century. Uh, it, it hasn't changed. The, the Gospels are the same yesterday, today, and then uh, the last is apostolic, meaning that Jesus walked the earth and he had 12 followers, more than that really, but 12 inner members. And what they taught, they taught to the early church fathers, and those church fathers taught to the uh, nascent church that went into the medieval church, that went into the uh, uh, pre-modern church, and now it's here today. So all of it means that Look, Lewis was right. There's, there's uh, a lot of different flavors, but if you're attracted to the idea of Jesus's message of love one another, then I think this is the place to get started. Yeah, no, that's great. 
I'll close with pretty much what I opened with, which was my talk about uh, my experiences in St. Peter's, especially in the crypt with John Paul II, and ask you, knowing about the the, the various saints and angels and spirits and things that are part of that supernatural belief, what's going on with John Paul II? What was I feeling there? There, there was an energy there, unlike anything I've experienced, certainly in a crypt or a church or um, – there was definitely a buzz. So, you know, I have this uh, this story in the book, and it's not my story. It comes from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures. And there's a prophet, and God commands the prophet, go to the mountain, and I will talk to you. So he goes to the mountain, and there's an earthquake, but God was not in the earthquake. And then there was uh, a storm, and God was not in the storm. And then there was a gentle whisper. And God was in the gentle whisper, and he came out of the cave, and he heard the voice of God. And what I think you experienced when you were with uh, a Pope Saint, John Paul II, who's been canonized, you heard the gentle whisper of God saying, Lawrence, I love you. I love your agnosticism and your, your, your search for truth. I am the truth itself. And even if you don't come, this is my opinion, but even if you don't come to, oh, well, I read Dan's book, and now I'm Catholic. You're going to continue looking for truth, and if you find truth, you can't help but find God. doesn't mean that you're going to convert, that you're going to suddenly become religious. Your agnosticism, your, your work as a historian, as a professor, as a publisher, what I know of you is you looking for that which is true. And there's so many lies and, and uh, deceptions in our world, but when you seek truth, you seek God, whether you know it or not. And that's what I think happened to you. I can only say amen. And, Amen, uh, we're out brother. of time, <laughs> Daniel. We'll have to continue this another time. Thanks for joining uh, us, Dan. Thank you. <laughs> we, have, we do have to go. This Take has care. been the Sunbury Press Book Show, Mere Catholicism. Mm-hmm.